y'all. Welcome to another week of The Orange Card. I'm your host, Tyler Dudley. This week, our guest Erin, she's visiting her former Division I team in LIU Brooklyn for their alumni weekend. So that means that we only have Will Moyo. Hey, guys. And Jared Bomba. How's everyone doing? How was your guys' weeks? Well, the soccer team that me, Tyler, lead producer Peter Benson, and Jose Cuevas play on, the Newhouse Seagulls, I think that we may have finally reached the power rankings pinnacle between us, the men's team, and the women's team. Of course, I'm kidding, but we got a, we got a 4-1 win on Thursday. A big win, a big yeah, win. Felt pretty good. I was there as a spectator, and Jared scored three times, and he's going to be really hard on himself and said he should have scored more, but he did a very good job. It was a great team effort. Tyler did well at the back. A uh, couple headers that she made where just you saw her eyes close. <laughs> it was rough. And she just put her head to the ball, and I think it was a great team At effort. one point, like, the ball hit me so, like, square on my nose that I thought I had a bloody nose. I didn't, but. Well, I'm just glad. I think we should disclose that this is the first time we've won since late August. Is yeah, that right? It's, it's been a long time It's coming. been a tough season, but good to get one in the W column. Well, to start off this week, the SE women, they got their first conference win. Once again, the men, they're kind of struggling in the ACC. The U.S., they've almost solidified their qualification for the 2018 World Cup. And as always, we'll wrap up the top 10 things in world soccer. And for this week's stoppage time, our guests Jared and Will are going to talk about U.S. soccer and their critical state right now. So we're going to start with the SU women for today. They had their first conference win against Pitt. They won 2-0 to on Thursday. However, they couldn't quite keep that momentum, and they lost 2-0 to to Notre Dame on Sunday. So let's start with the Pitt game. How crucial do you guys think that first goal was? Alex LaMontagne broke away over four minutes into the game, essentially muscled her opponent off, put the ball in the middle, and... Sydney Brackett had a chance, and it was saved, but she just stayed where she was and got the ball on goal. This was their first goal they'd scored in a couple weeks. I don't know how many minutes right now off the top of my head, but the goal was coming, and a score super early on in a game super important, especially because going into this, they knew that they had to win. I think it was a great moment for the team in general. I, tactically, it was the blueprint that they've been looking for all year. I think that Gordon and O'Neill, who we've talked a lot about in terms of their attacking prowess, actually started a little further back, defending a little more. So Syracuse was sitting, Pitt was possessing the ball a little bit, but there was just a couple moments where Allen found the ball in the middle of the field and was able to play Brackett and Allen in. I'm sorry, she played Brackett and LaMontagne in, one of those moments being that first goal. And it just looked like there was a real feeling of solidity defensively, but also that ability to spring their fast players in behind. I think that's really the blueprint and what makes the most of their talents. So, like I, like I always say, I think finishing goals is really important. Like I was telling you, like we talked about, you can have 10 shots on goal, but if you don't finish and you don't follow through, those shots on goal kind of don't really matter. And they have to, but not only that, but they have to be good, solid shots as well. You know, I love talking about tactics. I could all day. But you're right, you have to score the shots you create. LaMontagne's work was so effective that Brackett was about eight yards out. After the first one was blocked, she was still in a position to score. Alana O'Neill got her goal later in the first half, and it was, again, a great piece of play. Brackett uses her speed down the sideline, little combination play in the box, and O'Neill finds the back of the net, little deflection, but 16 yards out, you hit a ball hard. Things like that are going to happen. So, yes, it was good to see them create those opportunities, and that's the thing that will let them be effective going forward. But 
absolutely. If you don't find the back of the net, you don't win. So that was a really positive set of moments for them. Well, this was Brackett's fifth goal of the season and Alana O'Neill's first goal of the season. I think it was just really good placement overall. Now, Courtney Brosnan, she recorded her 300th career save in the game. So right now she's 20 saves away from being the all-time leader as far as Syracuse history goes. How huge is that for her? For a goalkeeper, anytime you record one save, you remember that because that might be the difference between winning the game, tying a game, losing a game. 300 saves is very impressive. That's, like being, a big, that's a big number. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if you could quantify that in wins. It'd be interesting to see because she's currently also third in the program with 17 shutouts. And for a team that hasn't had as much success as maybe they'd hope to, 17 career shutouts in a tough division like the ACC, that's very impressive. It's kind of become a running joke in our crew that every week Will, who was a former goalkeeper, talks about Courtney Brosnan. But I think at this stage of the season, it's hard to say that anybody other than her has been their best player. Looking at the last three weeks, she has been just outstanding. She's had saves low near the post. She's had balls high into corners. Pitt was probably the better team in the second half of that game. And she had, what, eight saves in the second half? And a couple of them were just downright spectacular. She gets a lot of talk on this show, but there's a reason for it. She's been exceptional. I think she's been their best player all year. Really delivered on, you know, her senior leadership. I totally agree with that statement, Jared. And it shows the senior leadership that at the start of the year, we didn't really know if it, if we'd have that. There were a lot of new It was new hard players. to see it. So here now, she will break the record. She will get those 20 saves in the next upcoming games. Uh, and because of that, she will go down in record books as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Syracuse goalkeeper, both men and women. That's a really bold claim because there have been a lot of great goaltenders, but Coach Phil Wedden is always very complimentary of her. And looking at a lot of the other senior leaders on this team, there have been circumstances, injuries, playing out of position. It's been hard for a lot of these players to find themselves where they want to be all the time. But Brazen has been absolutely solid throughout. She's been the real bedrock, and performances like she had against Pitt are the types of performances that will let them get more points going forward in ACC play and potentially take them to the postseason. Well, this was the first time that SU had won a game this season while being outshot, so I think they got very fortunate. Like you guys are saying, Brosnan, she had some really good saves really at really crucial points of the game. I also think that they needed to record more shots against more difficult opponents, such as Notre Dame. So speaking of Notre Dame, do you think there are any positives for the team moving forward? Absolutely. Going to any away game in the ACC, we've said this before, is is difficult. And because of that, they needed to start off on the right foot right from the get-go. They needed to create those chances. And the team had a lot of optimism at the start, you know, coming off an ACC win, this was new territory for the team this year. So they needed to find a quick pace, and they did allow 12 shots in the first half, so they were playing on the back foot, but that was expected. And going into halftime 0-0 was definitely a positive for Coach Wedden's team. I'm not one to glorify losses. A loss is a loss is a loss. But this week I was pretty impressed with the Orange bouncing back from their defeat against UNC getting a win against Pitt. We didn't give him enough credit for that, coming back after that defeat 
and getting a win in their next game. But I do agree that the performance against Notre Dame was something they can be pretty pleased with. Ultimately, 2-0 is not a great result, but that second goal was very much a result of them pushing players forward and trying to get an equalizer late in the game. And yes, they were on the back foot a little bit in the first half, but defended pretty well at Notre Dame, ranked 13th in the country. I don't think that what is essentially a 1-0 loss is a bad result. It ended up being 2-0, but I'm in my mind, it's more of a 1-0 loss. Well, I agree. Coming back, I think coming back of a 7-0 loss, we talked about that a lot last week. That that's a big deal. That's a, that's tough to come by. And then they go ahead and they win against Pitt, which is big for them. And then they lose against Notre Dame. Why do you guys think they lost then? They didn't have enough shots on goal. They had four shots in the first half. Only two of them were on target. In the second half, they had one shot, which went on target. If you compare that to Notre Dame, Notre Dame had 12 shots in the first half, 16 in the second 12 half. in the first half? Yes. That's a lot. You're right. We want to say positive things about this game against Notre Dame, and I think they're there to be had, particularly considering the way this season could have trended after last week. But there is still an issue when the Cuse women play against top-notch opposition with composure in the final third. I think that was actually the word that Coach Wedden used. He said they're just a little bit hopeful with a little lack of composure. They'll play a ball because they think there's a 15% chance it's going to work. At some point, you need people that are going to stand on the ball and connect on a pass that they know is going to happen 90% of the time. And that's the only way that you can keep the ball long enough to generate shots of a higher quality. So I agree, they need to generate more, better opportunities. But that's just something that's been trending for a while. And you have to be pleased with them being able to put together a performance like Pitt, even if it doesn't translate over immediately to Notre Dame. And I'm going to speak more about Courtney Brosnan because that's my role with the SU women's soccer team. Syracuse cannot rely on her every game. She recorded 10 saves. That is something that I don't know if they're allowing space for the shots to happen. Just another day at the office for her. And you know what? She's keeping the games close. Jared said this earlier. It could have been 1-0. It could have been a fair result. They pushed people forward. We're caught you know, napping at the back, as the term says. There needs to be offensive productivity if they're going to get anywhere. As I love to say, we don't want to glorify a loss, but I do think that defense played a little better. I thought Jessica Vigna had a really good game, and I think that this is a positive trend on you know a weekly scale, but also on a game-by-game scale for them heading into next week. So who else do you guys think they can get a win from this year? They need to win Wednesday when they host Miami. Miami are winless in the ACC. Syracuse right now is in the bottom half. They need to get one, maybe two more wins in the remaining games. They should look at this Miami team and know that they need three points because three points at this end juncture of the season is super important. I spoke a little bit about the tactical methodology they're going to want to apply going forward and I think that you're right this Miami game is massive because it gives them a chance to get three points and first and foremost that has to be the goal but there's also a real chance to identify themselves and really establish an identity if they're able to employ some of the tactics that they did against Pittsburgh with really finding a solid deep base with Vlacos and Kunin forming a defensive wall in front of those backs and being able to play into Allen and springing Brackett and LaMontagne and hostage in behind, that's something that they can not only use to great effect in one game, but can also let them build a little confidence in who they are as a team. 
that could get them three points against Miami, which would, is obviously the most important thing. But they also can take that forward and use it to get more points in this ACC chase as they try to make it to the playoffs. Now, on paper for the women, this will be the only game where they play against someone with the worst record, so I'm kind of hoping that this gives them a little bit of confidence. Speaking of confidence, the men also need confidence. Their season just doesn't seem to be getting any better. They keep playing better, but their results aren't there. Uh, the men, they played a lot better on Tuesday, even though they lost against Akron 1-0. to And Akron was undefeated since August. Uh, Friday, they had another chance to get their first ACC win in the season against NC State. NC State hadn't won on the road all year. But the 2-1 loss to the Wolfpack marked Syracuse's first loss to NC State since 1991. And that continued the Orange's worst conference start under Coach McIntyre since his first season in charge in 2010. So they keep conceding goals early on and keep having to kind of chase the game, essentially. How do you guys think they can stop that? Particularly against NC State, I thought it was a little bit unfortunate. It was a great opportunity early. Buchanan gets down the right flank, finds Delamel, who does a good job to get his toe on a ball, and it forces a great save out of the NC State keeper. I think his name is Kropf. That was a tough moment, and then the goal really came against the run of play, in my opinion. A little bit of a moment where one of the forwards for NC State, Taiwo, is able to get a little body on one of the Syracuse defenders, picks up the ball in the middle of the box, and they do a great job of blocking his shot. Syracuse does. But the ball just falls to another NC State player, tucks it between some legs, and finds the back of the net really against the run of play. Yes, they were down early again, and that is not what they want, but it's been kind of a tough luck thing in more games than just the NC State game. Syracuse need to play the first 10 minutes of every game for the rest of the season like they play the last 10 minutes of every game they've played this season. They put the f- 100% into it. They've gotten late goals. Oregon State, last 10 minutes, John Austin Ricks got that goal. They need to keep doing that from the start. Will, I'm glad you brought up energy because in my notebook, I have notes from this game, and it says there's an energy problem, and then there's a little arrow, and it says I'm really tired of talking about this. And I'm tired of talking about it because... It's like lightning in a bottle. If you're a player, you want it, you feel like you've done everything you can to prepare, and you feel like you should have it, and then it's not there. If you're a coach, you've amped your guys up, you've trained them, you've honed them to the right point, you get out there on the field, and it's not there. It's just something that comes or goes by the first three minutes, maybe the first 30 seconds, and the first two 50-50 balls. It's such a hard thing to grasp that... You don't even want to address it because you don't know when it's going to come and when it's going to go. It's just frustrating to talk about, but it is so important, and it has been a driver in their season. I watched the Akron game Tuesday, covering it for the news house. Tyler was doing the same thing for the Friday game against NC State, and we both saw that there was just no play in the midfield. Tyler's note specifically, the midfield was wide open. That's because there's such a lack of energy. You're so right, and because of that, they need to play 90-minute games the entire 100% for 90 minutes. They are ACC college soccer players. They can do it. Well, Akron's a good team. Do you guys think that they can gain confidence as far as playing a close game with them? Yes and no. Yes in that they've struggled, and so performing well against a good team is a good thing. No in that they are an ACC team, as you said, Will. They're a team that came into the season ranked 10th in the country, which maybe was a little high, but regardless— Syracuse as a program is at a stage where they don't want to feel good about losing to anyone. 
they want to reach the pinnacle. That's what they're shooting for. That's what Coach McIntyre drills into his guys every day of practice from the preseason. So can they feel good about playing better? Sure. From a larger standpoint, are they happy about losing to anyone? Absolutely not. Scheduling these non-conference games, something I asked Coach about, he takes a lot of positives with these games because the style of play is just a little bit different than ACC. Oregon State a few weeks ago, Akron this past Tuesday, Ohio State coming up. These midweek non-conference games are super important for the team to just find out what their identity would be going into maybe the NCAA tournament and playing these teams that they haven't faced, these styles of play they haven't faced. Akron, the past seven, eight years, are a really solid program. Current MLS coach Caleb Porter was the head coach of Akron. I actually got the chance to meet Caleb Porter when I tried to be recruited by Akron oh so long ago. Obviously didn't work out. But they had a long legacy, even with providing players and bringing them into the MLS. Darlington Nagby, we talk about him all the time, U.S. You know, star going to make it to Russia. They have players, they have that legacy that Syracuse are building as well. I hope to see Syracuse and Akron play for years to come, just because it's, these are two schools with such a strong recent history and success in NCAA soccer. Another great Akron player, Zarek Valentin, actually grew up in my hometown of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. A little shout out to Central PA there. I think he's on the Sounders now. He's bounced around Norway and the MLS a little bit. But yeah, you're right. Akron's an incredible program. And in a weird way, those results don't even matter, the out-of-conference games. But when you play those games and you find things out about yourself and you discover a couple things that are working in the middle of the park, like I thought we saw a little bit against Akron. I thought there were definitely moments where, you know, it looked like Peels finds a high ball, plays it back to Delamel, who finds Buchanan running through, and it looked good. And those are the things you need to learn. But you need to translate them into these conference games. If we're going to decide that those are the games that matter, you need to translate it into those games. Now, it's, the, it's only the second loss to NC State in the program's history. What do you guys think happened? As I mentioned, the goals just seemed a little bit unlucky. Going down 2-0 is a huge problem, and there was an energy problem, which we also touched on. But I will give them a little bit of leeway here and say that those early goals were kind of tough. You know, they blocked the first shot and the ball falls to another NC State player in the first goal. On the second goal... Miller went to just hoof the ball 80 yards up the field, which I'm a huge fan of. It hits somebody in the back and falls to an NC State player. They combine twice, and it's two goals. You're down 2-0. So sure, there were issues there, and Delamel, with a great opportunity early, didn't convert it. It was not an easy opportunity in his defense, but it just seemed a little bit unlucky to me. Second half, Kamal Miller steps up to take a penalty. You know, as the captain, you need to take those chances, and fortunately they did. But here's another chance where Syracuse were down one goal, and they had time to find that second, and they just couldn't do it. Syracuse have had at least 10 times this season that they've either tied or only won or lost by one goal. And this was already eclipsed last season, so they need to know how you do well in these one goal opportunities and so far this year they have been on the losing side more than the winning side so then what team do you think they can beat and do you think they're headed into their worst record as far as being under coach McIntyre can they beat anyone of course I think that there were real improvements this weekend as I've said 
feels like eight times this show. I'm not going to celebrate any losses, particularly for a team with high aspirations like the SU men. But there are good moments there. Against NC State, all that urgency in the second half. We saw great wing play from Adnan Bakalovic. Brought a lot, a real spark for SU in the flank. Johannes Peels didn't start, but I thought he did really well, giving the SU a possession outpost forward in the second half of that game. And in the first game of the week against Akron, I also saw a lot of positives. So I don't want to, really, really don't want to say, you know, losing's good. We learned some good stuff here. But there is definitely talent here. I've said it a thousand times. There are players here, and as long as they can continue to grind towards something a little better and find a little bit of that lightning in the bottle that they had earlier in this season, they're going to be able to pull out some wins against quality teams because underneath everything that's happened, I still believe there's a quality team here. Syracuse men have four games remaining on their regular season at Boston College this Friday. At Ohio State, October 18th, their final home game, October 21st against Clemson, and then the week after at Wake Forest. Definitely those last two games are the most challenging in terms of rankings. If Syracuse could get a result at one, if not both of that, then going into the ACC tournament, that would look a lot better. They'd look like a lot stronger program getting those key wins. That being said... I also could see Syracuse getting zero points in the next four games. And I just from what I've seen, there has been an improvement. Jared, you're absolutely right with that. However, they could take a step back if they don't get a result against Boston College. They could get take a couple steps back if they finish with zero points in these last four games. Looking at their schedule, maybe that's a good thing. They're 2-5-1 and one at home. They have a 3-1-1 one, one record on the road, so maybe going away from home is a good thing. But historically, that doesn't really hold up as a trend, and I think that any team would prefer to play at home. Just You do wonder when it's going to happen. I said this about the U.S. a couple weeks ago. At some point, you just need to start winning. You can take all the moral victories you want, but you need to start winning points. And that's just not happening right now. It seems like every game, there's something different that works and something that doesn't work, and it just never comes together. Winning is so easy when you're winning, but losing is even easier when you're losing. Well, I spoke with Coach McIntyre after the game, and he said something to what you just said. He said that NC State's big players made big plays, and our players just couldn't do that. And he also said that you, Jared, you said that we have a good team. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. And Coach McIntyre said that there are some good pieces, and he had some stuff to say about close games. Um, let's listen in. Uh, we've got uh, we've got some, uh, some some pieces here, and uh, um, look, we've talked as a group. Look, we don't want to say look, we're a we're a good young naive team. Like, let's start being a good team, and I think it's time for this group to, uh, including the coaching staff, including me, to uh, transition from a, a good young naive team to a good team, and I think we can do that. Going off of that, who do you guys think is to blame here? Do you think it's the coaching, or do you think it's the players? Well, let's start by establishing that there is a problem. They've lost six of their last seven games. They have yet to win in the ACC. That's a massive problem. Who is to blame? That is a significantly harder thing to pin down. I would go ahead and say that there are definitely players that have not produced to the degree that they were expected. I would also say that there are times where those players are not put in the best position to succeed. I would also say that those players are often put into a difficult position because there just don't seem to be any constants 
for this coaching staff. Looking down the lineup, I think Hagman has been great, more or less throughout. He was incredible on Friday. But as a result, he's actually being moved around more. He's not able to stay comfortable. He's being pushed further and further up the pitch because they want to get somebody that has that composure and class on the ball in the attacking third. But everybody has to play a different position because every game something different works. Syracuse, from the start, we've been saying this, it's a new team. Whether they're freshmen or they're transferring in. Delamel, technically a junior, but this is his first year with the Orange program. They're trying to find their chemistry. They're trying to find their identity. The women's team have their identity. The men's team still need to find theirs. Coach McIntyre's made a few substitutions these past few games that I've struggled to comprehend. One of them being bringing on Strangeland and Peels taking off Delamel and Buchanan. To me, Petter and Johannes are two similar players. Why are they bringing on two similar players? It's like bringing on two Peter Crouches if you're Stoke. Why don't you spice it up? Why don't you bring on someone fast? Why don't you maybe bring on someone, a, a ball player, someone like that? I think that's a fair bit of critical analysis on your part. But look at the pieces that they're playing with. And by they, I mean the Syracuse coaching staff. There are definitely pieces there. And in their preseason scrimmage, when they beat Hartwick 3-0, that was the first word out of Coach McIntyre's mouth to me. He said, you know, we've got pieces. But it gets really difficult when you have all these pieces, and then one night, three of them are working really well and fit really nicely together, and then the next night, one of those and two others might be working well, but you started with the three that worked last time, and it's just so on and so forth until all of eternity, and you just never find the right combination because it's always changing. On Tuesday, it was those three central attackers slicing up that Akron defense for portions of the second half. On Friday, it was a sub, Bakalovich, and Peels, who was another sub, offering two entirely different things, one of them giving possession in the middle of the field, Bakalovich giving a little width, two players giving unrelated things in different parts of the park that gave them their greatest shots. How do you tie that together when it's so different every time? It's difficult for players, it's difficult for coaches. Just got to wonder when it's going to come together. They just need a win. Well, that's everything from the Orange for this week. After the break, we'll be talking about the U.S. being on the brink of making another World Cup. As we've talked about multiple times on this podcast, the U.S. men's national team, they've kind of made it really difficult for themselves in the CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. Heading into this round of fixtures, the U.S., they were sitting fourth in the table. They beat Panama 4-0 to on Friday night, but that still hasn't quite solidified their ticket to Russia. All they need is a win against Trinidad and Tobago, who have nothing to play for on Tuesday. How 4-0 to against Panama, like that's a big deal. How did they how did they do that? They scored early. And not only did they score early, Who but scored early, Will? Christian Pulisic. Woo! Of course. There he goes, fanboying. Scored. And right away he was the target by the Panama defense. He got fouled multiple times leading up to his goal. And even then, as soon as the first goal went in. As a U.S. fan, you just knew that tonight was going to work. They were going to mold together. Everything else could look past, and you could look to the future. And nine minutes in, they were 1-0 up. That was amazing. I'm sorry. I was at work, actually, watching the game when I shouldn't have been. 
And the U.S. just looked so fast. Bruce Arena made a little bit of a gamble playing Pulisic centrally, playing Bobby Wood, playing Paul Ariola in the middle of the park. And the U.S. just looked so fast. I spoke last week about the quality of Panama center backs. And they're good players, let me be clear. But they're in their 30s. And the youngsters in the middle of the park for the U.S. were just exceptional. Looking at that goal, it is just Pulisic just zipping through the middle, untouched. It was really a great moment for Arena and obviously for Pulisic, yes. Would you say that the job is pretty much done? I mean, I don't see them. I don't see them losing to Trinidad and Tobago on Tuesday. Is the job done? Well, I'm scarred enough from the last two months to say no, because 4-0 victory or not, it's really hard to commit to them, obviously and easily, going to Trinidad and getting three points. The good news is they really only need one point. A tie almost certainly assures them entrance into the World Cup without a playoff. So it's not done yet, but yes, I'm feeling more confident than I was, though that may be a mistake. Trinidad and Tobago are bottom of the hex right now. Like you said, nothing to play for. If the U.S. play half as well as they played Friday night, they will get three points. And because of that, they should be really confident. That being said, they do not want to be in the playoff. They don't want games against either Australia or Syria coming up just because of all the European players that would have to go, you know, extra travel. They want to be able to use the November international break to maybe schedule friendly with a team that's already qualified, maybe get a little bit of experience. In that sense, maybe bring in a few new faces that might feature in Russia. After watching the game Friday, the U.S. should take what they did and they should apply it to Trinidad. And if they do, they'll score more than four goals. Well, you're right. We talked a little bit about general feeling as a team, but in a nuts and bolts tactical level, they have a lot going for them right now. Ariola, who didn't get a goal I think he should have gotten. Bradley was excellent springing attacks forward. Nagby was vicious quick. Really, really impressed with how they were able to do that. And, I mean, Christian Pulisic is such an X factor. Tyler, you and I watched him specifically on a couple of his most amazing plays, and that he's such incredible. an X factor. I will agree with Will on this one. It was absolutely incredible. That first goal, he I don't know how he did it. He The ball was like still rolling, and he just kind of like got a touch in there, and it hit the left bottom left corner of the net. And then that touch, that assist with Altidore, that was like that was so smooth. As a former coach and a longtime player, I could go through each of his best moments and pick out seven of them and go through why it's exactly how you want somebody to do something tactically and exactly how you want them to execute it as a player. But let me just stick with the first goal. Tyler, you and I watched it in slow-mo earlier today, and there's this incredible moment where all 21 people on the field are looking up at the goal kick. And he's not. And he's the only person on the field not looking at the goal kick. Like totally ahead of everyone. The ball hasn't even crossed over half field yet. And I think it's Bradley's about to contest it. Altidore is backing into his guy. Everybody's looking at the ball. Christian Pulisic is looking at the other corner flag, looking at how he can run away from whichever guy they've set to mark him. So by the, t- by the time the ball hits Altidore in the foot, he's already at full speed. He's through their back line. He's, you know, gone like any analogy you could put together. I can't come up with one right now. It was just a moment where you saw that maybe technically he's on another level for anybody that the U.S. has ever had. But in terms of soccer IQ 
and intangibles, he's just on another level. So when you have a strong base behind him and you have him in form, does make you feel very confident on a tactical and personnel level. I know we talk about it a lot. He's 19 years old. Like, I saw that goal. I That is just incredible. Like, I've seen some players who are well into, like, their 30s, and I don't think I've seen a goal that incredible, so well-timed. Like, that, that was just, like, I can't say it enough. That was awesome. Another great thing about this game is that Altidore got two goals. As a former goalkeeper, anytime you're in a penalty situation, you're told to just be confident and whatever way you dive, do it and have confidence. And watching the Panama goalkeeper dive while Altidore just with the slightest touch chips the ball, the Penenka penalty very famous. Look it up on YouTube. It happens all the time. Happened by Andrea Pirlo against Joe Hart. That's a great, great situation with that. Right before halftime, 3-0 up. Great for the U.S. The fourth goal for me was one of the best plays in the second half. Obviously, the U.S. knew they had the win, just didn't want to concede in the back. Bobby Wood plays the ball to Paul Ariola on the right, who kind of brings it up with that speed Jared was talking about earlier. Then finds Bobby Wood back to goal with the slightest touch, rotates 90 degrees to his left, and square on just one quick, easy motion. Like in one touch. No backdraft, yeah. And just puts it in the back of the net. And having never been a striker, but being on the other side of that, you kind of tell with the hips where the ball's going to go. But you can't tell that if you're guys looking straight ahead. The ball could have gone anywhere. Luckily for the U.S., it went in the back of the net. But that is such a blueprint. I talked about that for the SU women earlier. But for the U.S. men, it's been an awful qualifying campaign. But this is exactly how you want to feel looking into a World Cup year. You have the youthful exuberance and quality of Pulisic. You have a strong midfield line that features Michael Bradley, who I just thought was excellent and a guy like Paul Ariola, who was a bit of a surprise selection. So you have solid core of players. You have Pulisic. You have guys coming through the ranks. And then you have people like Altidore oozing confidence. I mean, to take a penalty like that, you have to be. That's the cocktail, right? That is what Bruce Arena was here to do. He was here to get all the parts moving in the right direction. He didn't make a brand new machine, but he made the best machine that his parts could possibly create. Moving to the international game this week, our top 10 things are very focused around the World Cup as more teams have guaranteed their places with a couple still available as far as tonight and tomorrow's European and South American games go. There's also been a little bit of heartbreak, but we'll get to that. So let's start with the 15 nations that have qualified for the 2018 World Cup. This past weekend, five European nations booked their ticket to Russia, uh, Belgium, Germany, Spain, and Poland, and Will's home nation of England have all guaranteed their places. Another British home nation could possibly have a place in the World Cup. Northern Ireland lucked out with a few games falling into their favor as far as one of the European playoff spots go. They'll still need to win a two-legged playoff to qualify, but at least they aren't yet eliminated. Unlike Scotland, this is where we talk about our lead producer, Peter Benson. He was very, I wouldn't say a little bit vocal. He was very vocal earlier. During Scotland's game, they tied 2-2 two to two with Slovenia. Uh, the Scots, they launched a late comeback, but they couldn't really find that winning goal that would have definitely nabbed them a playoff spot. Instead, Peter now has to wait another four years to see Scotland 
makes its first World Cup since 1998. That's a long time. The Netherlands, they have a very slim chance of making the playoffs with the game against Sweden on Tuesday that ultimately decides their fate in the World Cup. Uh, to avoid not making their first World Cup since 2002, our kindred spirits, the Orange, would have to beat Sweden by seven goals to do so. That's a lot of goals. A World Cup without the world's best player, Lionel Messi, is looking like a quite a possibility. I know Jared's probably not too happy about that. Uh, Messi's Argentina have to win in Ecuador in order to guarantee their qualification. They haven't won in Quito since 2001. This is upsetting. I remember very, very clearly what I was doing when Argentina lost the World Cup final in 2014 to Germany. I think, well, anybody that asks me who the greatest player in the world is, I say Messi 100 times out of 100 times. I'm the biggest Messi fanboy out there. And what it would do to his legacy to not make this World Cup would kind of tear me apart. Now, I will do that thing that people do when they defend their favorite player where they say it's not his fault they lost, but I watched the highlights from Argentina's game where they drew 0-0 with Peru, and it's essentially Messi putting on a show and then people missing opportunities for Argentina. Fortunately, the Argentine defense was good enough to make sure that Peru didn't get a winner, but this is a real possibility. The way Argentina's been playing, they're not certain to get a result against Ecuador, and I just can't bear the thought of a World Cup without Messi. I don't think anyone can. Messi, like, not making the World Cup? I feel like that's a really big deal. Is it even a World Cup without him? I, <laughs> that's these the days, question. No. Anyway. <laughs> oh, anyways. In the rest of the Comable, four spots are still remaining with Brazil having already qualified. It looks like at least one major South American team will be on the outside looking in as far as as Uruguay, Chile, Colombia, Peru, Argentina, and Paraguay all play on Tuesday to decide which of them will make it. In Africa, Egypt, they've made their first World Cup since 1990. The North African country, they squeezed out a win 2-1 to against Congo after Liverpool's Mo Salah scored two goals. Will smiling because it says Liverpool. Um, he scored two goals, including a 95th-minute penalty to win the game. Even without Liverpool having a game this week, I still get to talk about Liverpool, and that is unbelievable. So Mo Salah scores in the 62nd minute, just chips the goalie, and the commentators go crazy, the fans go crazy. Very crazy. Then another team gets a goal back, and it's 1-1, and in the 94th minute, a penalty for Egypt, and the entire country was watching, and up steps Liverpool legend Mo Salah. <laughs> legend. Oh legend. Liverpool He's legend. He's been on their team for three months. <laughs> Steps right up. He's already a legend. Smashes it home, and Egypt are after their first World Cup in 28 years. And I'm super happy for Mo. I'm glad he didn't get injured, and I can't wait for him to score again against Manchester United on Saturday. I'm sorry, Mo? Who's Who's Mo? You, oh, you guys are on a first-name basis. Oh, my God. Oh, I get it. <laughs> Anyways, guys, elsewhere, either Morocco or the Ivory Coast will qualify for the World Cup when they play each other in November. A win or a tie for Morocco would see them make their first appearance since 1998, while a win for Ivory Coast would see them miss the World Cup for the first time since 2002. In Asia, Australia, and Syria, they played to a 1-1 draw in Malaysia in the first leg of their playoff. Syria left it late, equalizing the 89th minute via penalty kick. The second leg will decide who plays the fourth-place CONCACAF team. In non-qualifying news, Italian legend Andrea Pirlo announced he's retiring from soccer at the end of 2017. With a career spanning 22 years, it's as old as I am, 
He's played 948 games, scoring 111 goals as a midfielder. Currently with NYCFC, his most memorable moments include a 2006 World Cup win, uh, two Champions League trophies, and six Serie A titles. That's it for the U.S. and International this week. After the break, our first joint effort will fill stoppage time this week as Will and Jared both look at the state of U.S. soccer. On Friday night, I was with lead field correspondent Erica Pischke at Wolf's Beer Garden downtown Syracuse to watch the U.S. men's national team against Panama. Getting there 35 minutes before, I thought I'd get a seat. Erica and I had to wait for people to go to the bathroom and take their seats. The bar was packed. Everyone wanted the U.S. to win. Standing up for the national anthem at a bar was something that I had never done before because I'd never been in a bar for U.S. men's national team, and I know that it's happened before, and that is the, the pride around the U.S. men's team and U.S. soccer right now. You're right. There's a lot of passion pouring out from American fans, members of the American Outlaws. You said there are, what, 175 chapters of AO? But it's interesting. I mentioned earlier that I was at work during the game, and one of the guys that I work with, he always does that a macho American thing where he pretends he doesn't like soccer, but then the kid next to him asked him the name of every player in the field, and this guy just happens to know. He's like, oh, that's so-and-so, and And Michael Bradley, he's, you know, old head defender. I'm like, I'm sorry, not a defender, but a midfielder. And I'm sitting there thinking, hey, this is a guy who, for some reason, feels as though he has to act like he's not a soccer fan. And here he is, knows the names of the players, has almost as big a crush on Pulisic as you will, And so it's interesting that, sure, there are really passionate fans in the U.S., but for the casuals that even have a reason to not care, to see them starting to really get behind this team is a really neat phenomenon to see. That became really evident during the 2014 World Cup. Uh, Parks such as Grant Park in Chicago had over 20,000 fans, many of which got behind the nation in a situation That's really unparalleled. Even looking at the U.S. Olympics, yes, you get behind the men's basketball team. Yes, you get behind other various random events. But there's not the same sense of pride. There's not the same sense of this team is going to do well. And because of that, there's just a sense of togetherness and supporting the U.S. no matter where you are in the country. And, Jared, you're absolutely right. Over 175 chapters. The American Outlaws was founded 10 years ago in Nebraska, and being all over the country now, in order to start a chapter, you have to have over 35 members. So right now, they're looking at about 35,000 people being AO members, me being one of them, just because of that sense of togetherness, supporting a team where, yes, you can say the Gold Cup's a pretty significant competition, maybe, but they only play the World Cup once every four years. It is interesting to see that grassroots support. I said last week about how even in the midst of political turmoil, it would give people across the world and including in the United States something to rally around. And that low level support all the way up through the top ranks in the national team has really yielded a lot of positive results. I know that people love to throw around the stat that there are more people playing youth soccer in the United States than any other sport. But over the last 10 years, we have really seen an acceleration 
in this game in the United States. I remember watching the MLS 10 years ago. Brian Ching was the best player in the league, and he was on the Houston Dynamo. And no shot at Brian Ching, certainly a great servant for the U.S. during his time, but the league has come so far, really at every level. The college game is at another level, divisions 1 through 3. The professional game doesn't even look the same. I would say the MLS still has its unique brand of soccer that maybe doesn't compare to other leagues across the world, but it is light years from where it was. And that is also seen at the national level. Sure, it wasn't the greatest qualifying campaign for the U.S., but the expectations are at a level they never were before. And, oh yeah, the play is at a level it's never been before either. I don't think we've ever seen a performance put on by any American player like we did by Christian Pulisic against Panama. But seeing that happen at the very top of the game is only a hint at what's happening underground here in the U.S. With youth soccer growing, the level of play growing at every single level, watch the fandom continue to grow. And it's not just going to be in games. When the World Cup draw comes out, there's going to be more people watching that. Beginning of December, you're going to find people that don't even think they know that much about soccer seeing a draw maybe, oh, the U.S. are in a good group. Oh, they're going to be in the group of death. This concept wasn't around four years ago. It wasn't around 12 years ago. It wasn't around whatever. And this repeated cycle of everything that's going on is great to see from a fan, a player of the sport for so long. The popularity is there, the fandom is increasing, and the U.S. should be very excited going into the Russia. It's interesting you mentioned the draw. I remember four years ago during the draw, a local sports writer in central Pennsylvania, a guy I have a lot of respect for, Pat Huggins, he tweeted something about how no one cares about the draw. And this is a guy I have a ton of respect for, and he, he was right. His pulse was exactly what a lot of casuals in the U.S. were at that time. But then also... I think two weeks ago, somebody that I did not anticipate asked me when the draw was, and I didn't even know, to be honest. But it was a total 180 from where we were four years ago. And that just really says a lot about where the game is at right now. The temperature's never been hotter. When the, when the fires were coming for people struggling, they were hot then. But when we see a performance like we did on Friday against Panama, we, I don't know that we've ever seen a temperature like that before. So, shameless plug here. On Tuesday night... A lot of us from the Orange Card will be down at Wolves again to watch this qualifier against Trinidad and Tobago. Come down, say hi. If you're not in the Syracuse area, go find a pub. Have yourself a pint on Tuesday night. Be part of the movement. This is what we get excited for. This is what the growth of a sport looks like in the U.S. Thanks, guys, for that. So here's hoping that the U.S. can get that win tomorrow so they can book their tickets for Russia tomorrow night. That's all we have time for this week. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TheOrangeCardSU. Also, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already and let us know what you think. Thanks very much to both Jared and Will. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our lead producer, Peter Benson, who's actually, his birthday is on Wednesday and he's turning, what, like 75, guys? I think 48. He doesn't look a day over 65.